us now to discuss his new book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. It's a history and critique of the way the wealthiest 1% of the world have systematically arranged the way societies operate in order to become even richer and how that has worked to the detriment to the rest of us. His book is published by Custom House, which is a, an imprint of William Morrow. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show now. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Uh, you focus largely on five men, private equity magnate Stephen Schwartzman, J.P. Morgan Chase executive Jamie Dimon, asset manager Larry Fink, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, and Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff. Uh, some of these names will be better known to the general public than the others. But um, one of them, Mark Benioff, uh, seems to be really important here. And I'd never, I'd, I don't think I was even aware of him before. Your, your, your opening chapter heading is, they write the rules for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these are people who are so wealthy and powerful that their wealth overflows jurisdictions, making it very difficult for any given country to regulate their operations. And, you know, I took the title from the World Economic Forum in the in the Swiss village of Davos, where every year there's this gathering of uh, a lot of these guys, uh, the wealthiest people on earth, heads of state, increasingly celebrities. Um, and there's this sort of earnest program dedicated to the challenges of our time, all under the, the mantra uh, committed to improving the state of the world, which is really kind of mm. bitterly ironic, given that these guys are the great beneficiaries of the status quo. And they use their participation to signal that we can count on them to take care of life's problems, which then armors them to go and do what they really do, which is protect their own privileges, lobby against any changes to the status quo, seek out more tax cuts, more deregulation. Benioff, who, uh, as you note, is the CEO of a Silicon Valley company called Salesforce, last year at Davos actually said CEOs are the heroes mm -hmm. of the pandemic. You know, he wasn't talking about frontline medical workers. He wasn't talking about parents of children cooped up dealing with the horrors of distance learning uh, or anybody else. You know, people emptying bedpans in nursing homes. CEOs, he said. And the government didn't save you. We did. And that, that just underscores how they use uh, their their wealth to signal that we can just count on them uh, as as the saviors of our society while they're actually using that to prevent us from using our democracy to get. And hasn't, want, like hasn't he promoted himself as, quote, the, the most empathetic corporate chieftain, although He's expressed a concern with homelessness. Doesn't he take advantage of tax policies to prevent his earnings from ending up in government social programs? Yeah, I mean, he's a complex character because, you know, a lot of a lot of billionaires use philanthropy to kind of shield themselves from taxation. Benioff's interesting because he's actually a very generous philanthropist. He tells this story. I mean, this is sort of a Silicon Valley cliche about how he founded his company. He goes to India when he's working for Oracle. He's having this kind of existential crisis. He meets a woman he describes as the hugging saint. She embraces him and tells him that the real meaning of his life is to make money and then give it back. So, you know, to his credit, he actually does 
uh, set up uh, a, a system where 1% of the company's revenues, 1% of staff time is dedicated to all kinds of philanthropic efforts. I mean, these employees have gone and worked as volunteers on the Tibetan plane. They've worked at refugee camps. They went to New Orleans after Katrina. They're worried but, about water buffalo. Uh, you know, they're worried about a lot of things. They don't want polar bears to succumb oh, the to the polar bears. Stroke. That's what I meant. I didn't mean water buffalo. Yeah. Polar bears. Right. Uh, they, yes, they, I mean, they, in terms of rhetoric, they're worried about all sorts of things. And, you know, Benioff has actually ponied up some money. I mean, he, he financed a ballot initiative in San Francisco that raised taxes on companies like his own to uh, increase services for homeless people. But as you intimate, uh, in a couple of years where Salesforce has racked up billions of dollars in revenues, it has paid the modest sum of zero yeah. in federal taxes. And, and you know, how much... Uh, what can we accomplish in terms of health care, education, infrastructure, stuff that people like Mark Benioff rely on to amass their fortunes if, if giant companies are not paying anything to the government? You write, and I'm quoting, the same year that Benioff backed the special levy to address homelessness in his hometown, his company recorded revenues exceeding $13 billion while paying the modest sum of zero in federal taxes. Salesforce deployed 14 tax subsidiaries scattered from Singapore to Switzerland, moving its money and assets around in a masterful display of accounting hocus pocus that made its taxable income vanish. $15 yeah. $13 billion vanished. <laughs> right, right. And, and, you know, I point out in the book that it's not like Benioff invented that uh, Rube Goldberg contraption. You know, he inherited it from the Clinton administration, uh, the Treasury run by, you know, Bob Rubin, the CEO of Citigroup, uh, Larry Summers. I mean, they 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 accepted this idea sold by the group I call Davos, man, this 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 billionaire class presenting themselves as the saviors, that if these guys were freed up to run their businesses as they saw fit, if they were freed up from regulations and taxes, uh, that would spur more innovation that would lead to a trickle down of wealth, something that has, in fact, happened zero times in recorded history. Uh, and, but they bought into it. And so, you know, one can quite rightfully argue that Benioff or any CEO would be foolish to not avail themselves of tax breaks that are in the, in the tax code. And this is all perfectly legal. But it's important to note that Benioff, like many CEOs, uh, is a member of the Business Roundtable, this lobbying organization in Washington, uh, headed at one point by Jamie Dimon, another character in my book, mm. the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, America's largest bank. You, and, make, you know, they feel, lobby the book the makes me guys. feel guilty that I, I have my money at Chase. Huh. Uh, well, you know, go find a bank that isn't run by somebody uh, who's essentially doing their own bidding That's what and, I and funneling money to shareholders. Uh, you know, it, it's not, by the way, that these guys are bad guys. I mean, maybe they're wonderful parents. I'm sure they love their families like everybody else. And and it's not even that that it's wrong for them to pursue their, the interests of their companies and their shareholders. What's wrong is that they've marinated society in this idea that we're all going to win when they win. And that's just bunk. And they've used that idea to preempt government, to preempt us, the people using our democracy to get our cut of the action, which is something back for our infrastructure, you know, for the stuff we all benefit from the internet, the electrical grid schools. You know, I mean, look at vaccines uh, where we have companies like Moderna and Pfizer exploiting 
publicly financed research to develop vaccines. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness for their brilliant minds who gave us these vaccines. But why do we have to accept this Davos man notion that we either have the status quo where we have these vaccines, but that also involves uh, incredibly unequal distribution so that most of the rest of the world is unprotected, which is an open invitation to the Omicron vi- variant and who knows how many other variants down the line. We either have this, the status quo, or we get no vaccines at all. That's nonsense. And yet that's an idea that now saturates our, uh, are our they, political discourse. Are, are they promoting a, a version of the old trickle-down uh, theory? Oh, very much so. I mean, one of the things Benioff said if you continue that quote that he gave at Davos last year, he said, he said, you know, we all, the CEOs, we spent hours coming up with solutions to these problems. That's how we got vaccines. That's how we got credit for companies that would have otherwise gone bankrupt. And then he specifically said the government didn't save you. Non-governmental organizations didn't save you. We save you. I mean, implicit in this is why waste money on government? You know, this idea that goes all the way back to Reagan. Why waste money on bureaucrats when we are best positioned to solve your life's problems and we're the good guys? And if you do that, there will be trickle down. And I mean, that was the idea that that sold the Trump tax cuts worth one point five trillion dollars lavished on people like Jamie Dimon and Mark Benioff. Uh, and, and that's that idea is still with us now. The term Davos man was coined in 2004 by the late political scientist Samuel Huntington to refer to a subset of affluent attendees at the annual World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. Uh, But it's been postponed this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. On the whole, do all of the men you write about in this book attend it? And I say men because as far as I can tell, everyone involved is is white and male. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some Davos women, but yeah, by and large, uh, these guys are overwhelmingly white males. They have all attended in the past or generally attend. I mean, Benioff and Larry Fink is another character in the book. He's the world's largest asset manager. Mm-hmm. His company, BlackRock, has vacuumed up pension funds around the world, uh, university endowments, uh, any great stash of money lying anywhere uh, they get a hand on. He, he's now managing $10 trillion worth of wealth. That's that's a lot of money, however you look at it. Uh, he attends the forum. He's been on the board of trustees. Bezos, wait, 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 I wanted, Amazon. Well, let's founder, talk about Larry go. Fink for a moment. Sure. Uh, he's professed concern for the environment, but isn't that because he sees rising seas and turbulent weather as a threat to his real estate holdings? Well, I mean, I think to give Larry Fink his due, uh, he has clued into the reality uh, that if you're trying to value anything and you're not factoring in climate change, your your model doesn't work. I mean, this is a guy who pioneered mortgage-backed securities way back when he was at First Boston. And if you're, how do you value a mortgage-backed security with housing pledged as collateral against it if you're not thinking about coastal flooding and other manifestations of climate change? So that's all well and good. I mean, the problem with with Larry Fink, as I argue in the book, is that he he takes credit for spurring all this change. I mean, he, with Benioff, is a champion of this thing they call stakeholder capitalism, Mm. this idea that the days of Milton Friedman and shareholder maximization are behind us. It's not just about 
uh, corporate executives, you know, pursuing their greedy impulses and, and trickle down. The new corporate leader rightfully sees themselves as a source of progress, answerable to all these stakeholders, labor, local communities. You know, they, they, they leave out some key things talk about employees, but they don't talk about labor movements. They talk about public-private partnerships, but they don't talk about uh, paying taxes uh, to the government. The problem with Fink on the environment is that he, on the one hand, presents himself as this great force for change. Oh, we're, we're counseling all these companies that we hold stakes in to do the right thing and alter their operations. At the same time, he'll say, well, I'm, I'm really just a passive uh, investor, because a lot of the money that I manage goes into index funds and exchange traded funds. I don't really actually have any say over where it goes. Moreover, he's invested in things like Saudi Aramco. He's helped finance uh, their pipelines. He's a huge holder. BlackRock is the number three holder of JBS, this Brazilian meatpacking conglomerate that's clear cutting the Amazon to expand uh, beef cattle operations. So he sort of has it every which way, and he really uses stakeholder capitalism as a way to signal, hey, you know, we've got this. You don't have to regulate. CEOs will take care of this, while really he's an enabler of the status quo. Stakeholder capitalism is supposedly a kinder, gentler brand of capitalism in which businesses care about more than just profits and are, are answerable to their employees, the environment, and local communities? Is that actually how it works? I mean, that that's the idea of it. How it seems to work uh, is we get a lot of talk and not a lot of action. So, you know, in the summer of 2019, this is before the pandemic, the business roundtable then headed by Jamie Dimon, adopted this thing called the Statement of a Purpose of a Corporation, which was supposed to be a formal update on their previous Milton Friedman-like principles, where they said, we're all for stakeholder capitalism. Now we're answerable to all these stakeholders. So, you know, in my book, I use the pandemic as the first serious test of these principles. And look, Jeff Bezos signed the Statement of a Purpose of a Corporation. Jeff Bezos, during the pandemic, allowed his warehouse workers to continue laboring inside his warehouses without protective gear like face masks, gowns, hand sanitizer. Amazon had lobbied for years against paid sick leave. And when there was a labor uprising at a big warehouse in Staten Island where workers walked out uh, and demanded uh, paid sick leave, they demanded that they be allowed to go home as, as COVID cases uh, were working through the plant uh, and without protection. Uh, this the, the leader of this movement was fired. Jeff Bezos then delivered this letter. Dear Amazonians, it said he acknowledged that they didn't have enough PPE for the workers, but he he lauded them as essential workers who were engaged in the enterprise of saving other people's grandmothers by sending out, by prioritizing, he said, you know, the most important products for the pandemic. Well, the guy who got fired, a guy named Christian Smalls, who has been written about, uh, I spent a lot of time with him. And one of the things he told me was that was just nonsense. There was no change in the product mix. He said, we're putting the same things in the boxes that we always do. There's, you know, peanut butter, video game consoles, sex toys, like whatever people are buying, that's what we're putting in the boxes. So this is a classic example of Bezos who earns enough from the labor of his employees unprotected to blast himself into space in the middle of the pandemic and thanks his employees, where this fortune is coming, not while his employees are in harm's way, but because his, his employees are in harm's way.
My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Peter S. Goodman, global economics correspondent for the New York Times. We're talking about his new book called Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, published by Custom House. Although the robber barons systematically looted the world's economies in the past, haven't recent developments like the Trump tax cuts and the way that these men have dealt with the pandemic exacerbated the situation? Oh, very much so. But, you know, you really have to go back to the 80s, right? I mean, this this story starts in the 80s, where from the end of the Second World War till, till the mid-70s to the late 70s, we have a, a situation in the U.S., and, and now I'm talking primarily about the U.S., where you know, we got a lot of problems. We got Jim Crow. We have the Vietnam War. I'm not looking for a time machine back to 1975. But one thing we have is strong labor unions. We have antitrust enforcement. And we have wages that are commensurate with the productivity gains uh, in, in the economy. And what we've had since is the people I call Davos men systematically manipulating the system pulling the levers of our democracy with campaign contributions, with lobbying, with sophisticated use of research out of friendly think tanks, poisoning our discourse with this idea of what I call the cosmic lie, this idea that, you know, if they're doing okay, then we're all doing okay, even though we've conducted an open air experiment and trickle down and it hasn't worked out the way uh, it, it, it was promised. And they strip away worker protections. They, they, open up trade deals. And, and let me just pause and say, I'm not against trade, nor should anybody be. Trade is actually a progressive source of wealth, but they divvy up the pie in such a way where people like Jeff Bezos end up with all the money. Uh, and and we, we leave people, and, and this is now a global phenomenon, not just in the US, but in every major economy, kind of stuck in stagnation, declining living standards. And as a result of that, a whole series of political opportunists come along diagnosing real problems and prescribing, you know, crackpot solutions like demonizing immigrants, like monkey wrenching globalization, attacking the liberal economic order. And here we are. That's the run up to the pandemic. So by the time we get to the pandemic where we need international cooperation, we need people to have faith in leaders and facts and science and institutions so that we can actually make the sacrifices that we need to make. Nobody believes in anything anymore, you know, and, and, and large numbers of people have a good reason uh, to have concluded that the people running their economies don't care very much about their needs, their ability to pay the bills. And I think that's part of why, you know, we have such low vaccination rates in the U.S. That's part of why we can't talk about things like climate change. It just makes it very difficult to govern. And you point out that this is not unique to the United States, but also in Italy, France, China, and even Sweden, which is often praised right. as a paragon of enlightened social democracy. And you and you point out that it cuts across political lines. You mentioned Bill Clinton, also uh, Emmanuel Macron, and former British Treasury Secretary George Osborne. Right. Uh, I mean, I look from... Economy to economy. I mean, I was living in London when I started writing this book. I covered Brexit. Um, I was at Davos right after Trump got elected. And wait, and and does Brexit a- fit into this whole story? Oh, very much so. I mean, George Osborne, the Treasury Secretary, responds to the financial crisis in Britain by bailing out bankers, 
uh, cutting taxes for wealthy people, uh, declaring that this will spur innovation and growth, which doesn't happen. He pays for the tax cuts by slashing the social safety net. I mean, Britain is a place that has a national health care system. It uh, used to have fairly generous uh, social welfare benefits for people who were in trouble. I mean, if you if you were unemployed, uh, if your job got destroyed uh, by by a a trade arrangement, you know, if something happened, you, you you could have some help. And he cut programs to the bone. He he said that this was required. You know, everybody had to make a sacrifice to get uh, Britain back to a more vibrant state. Britain goes through 10 years of miserable austerity where uh, people, uh, particularly in the north of England, in Wales, are really suffering uh, downgraded living standards. Rank and file manufacturing workers go through a decade where their their real incomes decline. And, you know, along comes Brexit, which is this kind of convoluted question that most people don't even understand. You know, should Britain be in the European Union? I mean, famously, the number one Google search in the UK the day after the referendum that set Brexit in motion was what is the European Union? So people people think they voted for it. Well, they, they had voted for it. You know, I spent a lot of time in places uh, talking to people about why they supported Brexit. And the most clarifying conversation I had and, and part of the foreign correspondent cliche was I was talking to a taxi driver in Sunderland in northeastern England. And Sunderland was particularly interesting because there's a big Nissan plant there. And Nissan, like a lot of multinational companies, had set up a big factory in England because the UK is part of the large European marketplace. They can build their stuff in the UK. They can sell their stuff across this giant marketplace with 500 million wealthy people as if it's just one big country. And the CEO of Nissan had expressly said, don't vote for Brexit, because if you do, it's going to change the economics of this. and We can't guarantee we'll be around. And Sunderland voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. And the reason was, you know, we've got Reagan in the United States. In Britain, they talk about Maggie Thatcher, who crushed the unions, who downgraded uh, social welfare programs. And, and the people in Sunderland essentially said, look, we don't understand this question. We don't really understand what's what's at issue. But we do understand that Maggie Thatcher and I there's a more colorful language, uh, word that I'm going to use on your program, you know, screwed us. Mm-hmm. And uh, then George Osborne and David Cameron, who's the, the conservative party prime minister when Osborne was treasury secretary, they continued to screw us. And then they came up here and they said, please, you know, vote against Brexit. Well, we didn't know what the hell was going on, but we knew we weren't voting with that lot. Mm-hmm. And and it really was this kind of powerful rebuke of the elite that at the same time was manipulated by a narrow group of hedge fund guys who wanted out from under European Union regulations on their industry. And so they sold this as like, this is British sovereignty. Britain's going to get out from under this staid a stagnant European Union and get back to its swashbuckling, you know, imperial days. It was really this craven bet by this narrow interest that manipulated democracy for anti-democratic ends. And they persuaded people who had real grievances to vote for something that actually made their problems worse because the British economy has been hurting ever since that vote. Investment has diminished and those jobs in Sunderland are at risk, along with a lot of other jobs throughout England. But didn't Boris Johnson, a conservative, also support Brexit? Well, Boris Johnson started out uh, seemingly against Brexit. And then uh, when he recognized an opportunity to off his buddy, David Cameron, uh, you know, uh. his schoolmate, 
Uh, he he very opportunistically flipped yeah. uh, in favor of Brexit. And then he tortured Theresa May, who was the prime minister who had been against Brexit, but who took over after Cameron had to quit in disgrace right after the referendum. And who then spent you know three years suffering this ritualized form of parliamentary torture, where she tried to cook up a deal that didn't actually change anything, but she could call delivering on the Brexit mandate. Uh, eventually, she was thrown out. Boris Johnson replaces her and that he actually implements Brexit because, you know, that was his his mandate in coming in. But the whole way along, the people who suffer are the people whose votes created Brexit. I mean, it's it's not dissimilar, really, to what's happened to manufacturing workers in, in, in the U.S. whose uh, whose problems uh, crystallized uh, with uh, the election of Trump. Who comes in and says, well, you know, China's the source of our problems. We're just going to slap tariffs across the board on all Chinese goods. Well, the bankroll for this is Steve Schwartzman, uh, who's another character in my book, a guy worth $30 billion, the world's largest private equity magnate, who actually has a lot of investments in China. His real angle is, I, you know, I don't really care what the circus is is telling us in, in, in Washington. What I want is tax cuts and deregulation. And his buddy, Donald Trump, that you know, one of Schwartzman's a guy who owns mansions the way most of us own socks. And during uh, the mortgage crisis, didn't his company buy foreclosed properties? Is is he claiming that they, he was doing something good when he did that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a classic Davos man play. Yeah, he bought up lots of foreclosed properties, and in his memoir, he goes on at length about how this was really an act of civic virtue. These properties were an eyesore; they were rodent infested, they were abandoned. People weren't uh, weren't uh, mowing the lawns, and and so his company came in with hundreds of millions of dollars and bought all these properties on courthouse steps, and soon. Uh, these owners who couldn't afford them were replaced by tenants with co fresh coats of paint. You know, you can almost hear the soundtrack for a life insurance commercial with, you know, a golden retriever puppy, you know, mm -hmm. romping around on a lawn with a toddler. In reality, he sets up a subsidiary called Invitation Homes, which then invites these new tenants to pay much higher rates of rent. Uh, and then he cuts maintenance and makes it impossible to reach anybody if there's a plumbing problem. Uh, and this is a template that he pursues around the world, in, including in Sweden. But but again, he tells us that he's doing a favor. He's a to hero. Society. Yeah. And by the way, he's doing this again. Uh, he's used the pandemic, Schwartzman, as an opportunity to buy up more distressed property in Florida. Just in the last couple of weeks, he sunk three hundred million dollars into a bunch of affordable housing complexes in South Florida. And he's he's using a model called rent to own where he promises home ownership in exchange for rent, but the rent gets jacked up, people fall behind, there are more fees, there are hefty fees for missing a payment, and it seems like that story is not going to end happily either. Now, let's get back to the whole concept of, of Davos Mann. I, I mentioned that it was coined by the late political scientist Samuel Huntington. Uh, was he, did he mean it in a derogatory way? Because uh, from what I understand, although the forum is, is, uh, addresses idealistic things, the real action, the deal-making and networking, takes place outside the conference center at cocktail parties and fancy dinners. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's really a charade. Well, first of all, there's like 27 different Davoses. And when you're there, you always feel that there's something more interesting happening to somebody else while you're desperately trying to figure out how to get from one place to, the, to another in the ice. Huntington was basically talking about people who are so powerful and wealthy that they don't have any real allegiance to any country. Uh, I mean, they've got residences sprinkled across jurisdictions. They need tax accountants everywhere. They're, they're, they're these kind of global, globetrotting elite. And it, it was derisive. Uh, and it's become this catch-all term to, uh, to describe the, the billionaire class. I mean, I'm using Do they it work in concert in a, with each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's overlap. I mean, I'm using it to describe people who would be under the Huntington definition, but also who are into this whole virtues signaling. I mean, this is where these guys are different from the robber barons. Yeah, the robber barons, they gave us Carnegie Hall and other infrastructure. They like to put their names on things. But by and large, they were content to end up with all the money. I mean, people like Benioff, Larry Fink, Steve Schwartzman, they want our adulation. And they want us to view them as the good guys, and they use that as a prophylactic against redistribution and the sorts of policies that would actually make capitalism work for, for more people. Now, you know, Davos itself plays a key role because on the one hand, there's this forward-facing, earnest program of seminars about all sorts of important things like climate change, you know racial justice, migration. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting things you can learn wandering around Davos. But for most of the actual Davos men, I mean, they'll, they'll even brag that they never actually set foot in the conference center going to any of those conferences. <laughs> They're trying to get invites to this bacchanal thrown by a Russian oligarch who flies in prostitutes from Moscow. Uh, they, they might go and uh, simulate the Syrian refugee experience. I mean, I've seen this. You see billionaires led through the dark, blindfolded, listening to people hollering at them in language they don't understand, demanding papers. And then they congratulate themselves for their empathy, imagining what it must be like to be a Syrian refugee before they go off and you know, have cocktails and caviar and lobster underwritten by some global consulting firm at one of the many banquets they attend that night. This is... London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. with Peter S. Goodman. Uh, I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212 209 2950 during today's show. And don't forget to make that $75 
donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you so much. And should point out that the book is published by a new company called Custom House. It's a, uh, a new line of books from William Morrow. Um, we, we, we were talking about COVID before. Um, right. Uh, the economic inequality has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, hasn't it? The wealth of billionaires has risen more than uh, more since COVID-19 began than it had in the last 14 years. And at $5 trillion, isn't it the biggest surge in billionaire wealth since records began being kept? Yeah. I mean, Oxfam told us in this report they released the other day, it's always timed with the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, that the 10 wealthiest people in the world, including Jeff Bezos, is one of my primary characters, uh, doubled their wealth uh, in the course of the from pandemic. Billion of humanity. From $700 billion to $1.5 trillion at a rate, Oxfam points out, of $15,000 per second or $1.3 billion a day. That, that was just during the first two years of the pandemic, and it's seen the incomes of 99% of the world's people's fall and over 160 million more people forced into poverty. I mean, these numbers are astonishing and jaw-dropping and entirely unsurprising because, I mean, the, the, the biggest mission that I set out to accomplish in this book is to show you that none of this stuff has happened by accident. Hmm. I mean, the economy, I, I don't mean to say that we're living in some sort of, you know, puppeteer conspiracy where the billionaires are, everything happens purely by design. But, you know, it's not happenstance that the money has flowed upward because they've systematically used their lobbyists and their lawyers and their accountants to write the rules such that there is this dramatic bottom up transfer of wealth. And at the same time, I'm sorry to go back to Benioff, but he's just such an exemplar of the species we have to understand. Davos, man, you know, he said in April of 2020, while he's sitting in his oceanfront estate on the big island of Hawaii, he says, you know, the the pandemic has made us all one. I mean, he's a guy who has this penchant for kind of it's a Silicon Valley cliche now, this this kind of bohemian uh, countercultural speak. I mean, he's, he's somebody who's co-opted the Hawaiian phrase ohana, which means kinship. He refers to everybody in the company as ohana. He brings executives out to Hawaii to put their toes in the sand and hold hands. I mean, this is he's a kind of a touchy feely guy. That's his brand. But he says uh, again, in the first wave of the pandemic, we're all one. We're all uniquely exposed to this virus. It's erased the illusions of our borders. And by the way, somebody at Salesforce reached out to me to point out that Salesforce actually does a lot of business with ICE, uh, for whom the borders are in no way illusory. But like, come on. I mean, all we need to look at is who's delivering the packages, Who's in the hospitals emptying the bedpans? Who's working at slaughterhouses? I mean, there are a lot of people who can't do their jobs by Zoom, and those people are uniquely in harm's way, like people who work in Jeff Bezos's warehouses. And even those of us who can do our jobs by Zoom, we're dealing with kids who are dealing with distance learning, and we don't have servants to attend to all of our needs. I mean, this idea that uh, this pandemic is some sort of magic carpet ride to one humanity is just patently absurd. I mean, I mean, Steve Schwartzman was able to buy rapid tests way back in the near the beginning of the pandemic, the first summer, so that he could host dinner parties at his mansion in the Hamptons at the same time that New York City public schools 
were unable to come up with any sort of plan for testing. So they, they were shut down. We've seen a surge in purchases of private islands, private jets, yachts. I mean, the billionaire class has pulled further away from humanity than ever. And just in terms of the structure of businesses, I mean, Amazon is a more powerful e-commerce force than ever. They've actually responded to the supply chain disruption by chartering their own container ships. They're looking into buying their own planes. The, the well, economy- they by the fact that people are trapped in their homes. And so uh, they like the idea of being able to buy stuff online. Oh, sure. I mean, it's an incredible convenience. And it's hard to imagine what, how we would have survived these last couple of years without e-commerce. The question is, what are the terms and who benefits and who gets left in harm's way? And uh, it's it's true that that this is why, you know, Salesforce has, has increased in value. Benioff's company makes software that allows us all uh, to work from home. But the result of this is it's going to be much harder for small businesses to compete because the giants are the ones who've been able to survive the pandemic by adapting to all the changes. You say that this widening economic inequality uh, is uh, destabilizing democracy and is the decisive force behind the rise of right-wing populist movements around the world. Um, so can we, link, can we link the events of January 6th to it? Yeah, I, I think we can. Uh, I mean, first of all, we don't get Trump. We don't get Brexit. We don't get the Sweden Democrats, this party forged in the neo-Nazi movement that's become a mainstream party in Sweden. Uh, we don't get Matteo Salvini's League in Italy or Marine Le Pen's National Front in France without uh, the reality that you have huge numbers of people who, through their own lived experience, have come to distrust the elites. They're not crazy to think that the people running their societies don't really care very much about their needs, their ability to support their families. And that leaves them vulnerable to all sorts of crazy ideas about you know, what we ought to do about it. But you know, fast forward to January 6th. Why are so many people, contrary to every available evidence, convinced that this election was stolen from Donald Trump? Well, you know, he's got a social media platform. There are a lot of people who now there's a whole industry devoted to promulgating his thoughts and stirring the pot and collecting advertising dollars and selling books on that. But also we're we're living in a time when people's lived experience tells them they, they, they shouldn't trust what people are saying. I, I think you can link this inequality again to the low vaccination rates uh, in the U.S. And, and what I saw, you know, my own travels in Europe is that behind on the surface, there was always some reaction to to something like, you know, a big influx of migrants arriving in Sweden. Uh, and there would be, you know, partially a racist recoiling, partially the spirit of collectivism breaks down when suddenly you're paying tax dollars, very high taxes uh, for very generous social services. People look like you don't speak the same language as you don't pray to the same God. I mean, that that that's that's how things go. But it opens up tremendous opportunities for, you know, whether it's Trump aiming Mexican and Central American immigrants and China for decisions that are made in American boardrooms and in Congress or in Sweden, you know, blaming the uh, diminution of the social safety net on a bunch of Syrians and Afghans who are desperately trying to learn Swedish, desperately want to work when the, the real situation is that they cut wealth taxes dramatically after the founder of get 
from under Swedish taxes. What we find again and again is beneath this reaction, like to migrants in Italy, is the reality of steadily years tax evasion, tax avoidance by the richest people in the country and a reduction of government services, a reduction of working opportunities. And that all creates for people to come. We are breaking up a little bit there. to real problems. Uh, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Well, I mean, it's sad, but uh, I think that it's still coming across. Uh, on the other hand, there's been resistance to uh, to taxing the extreme uh, wealthy anymore. Uh, the the, uh, the Trump tax cuts remain in effect. So right. uh, that's part of the politics of America. Uh, you... Um, you also point out that uh, they uh, have successfully lobbied to benefit from taxpayer finance bailout packages like the CARES Act, which expanded unemployment benefits and sent relief checks to millions of Americans. Yeah, and that part was really important, and we should feel really fortunate that that happened. But, you know, the, most of the bailouts have been aimed at rescuing assets, and assets are owned by Wealthy people, they dominate the holdings of assets. So when we essentially when we use both Treasury funds and the Fed printing dollars uh, to target assets, uh, we bail out a lot of uh, would would otherwise be bankrupt fossil fuel ventures that were built on uh, rickety debt. Uh, and we bail out Steve Schwartzman's investments in, in bonds uh, sold by those companies. Uh, we, we bail out uh, a lot of uh, investors who bought into the healthcare system and helped actually uh, worsen and lengthen uh, the pandemic. I mean, in the run up to the pandemic, we, we had a loss of hospital rooms as investors like, C, like Steve Schwartzman bought into healthcare for the simple reason that we spend an awful lot of money on healthcare. And, and they treated healthcare like they treat every other industry. You know, you want pricing power. How do you, how do you get pricing power? Well, you eliminate capacity. So they shut down hospital rooms. They started to treat patients more and more uh, like revenue centers and medical personnel as costs to be contained. And that's part of how we end up overrun uh, by the pandemic in many major economies, not just the U.S., but the U.K., Italy. Uh, and, and the punchline is that in the U.S., the CARES Act then is exploited by a lot of these same investors uh, as, as rescues once their operations are faced with trouble. And meanwhile, Steve Schwartzman is sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars of fresh investment that he plans to plow into more health care. Didn't the CARES Act also contain a $170 billion tax cut that benefited real estate developers as well as billions of dollars in aid for huge companies like Boeing? Yeah. Well, my colleague Jesse Drucker at the Times uh, broke that incredible story of this provision worth $170 billion tucked in at the last minute uh, via an amendment to the Senate bill uh, that had no relation whatsoever to the to COVID or the COVID relief. It allowed real estate developers, including uh, Donald Trump uh, and Jared Kushner and his family, uh, to uh, deduct losses going back, I believe, as far as 2018. I mean, long before anybody's thinking about the pandemic, this was just a flat out boondoggle. This is how Davos Man operates. Every crisis is an opportunity for corporate welfare. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on 
WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest today is Peter S. Goodman, global economics correspondent for the New York Times. And uh, his book is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Were you um, writing this as, as part of your job for the New York Times and stories that you were writing for the New York Times? I mean, I used some of the reporting from stories I had been doing for the New York Times. But no, when I decided to write the book, I had to to figure out how to cram it into my own life, which was somewhat challenging in the midst of the pandemic with a couple of school aged children home from school and a new baby born in the middle of all this. It's 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 uh, we've all had an adventure and my family certainly had our share. Uh, What was the most difficult aspect of researching and writing this book? I mean, the hardest thing was the pandemic itself. I mean, I I would have liked to have gone to Davos uh, last January to see my characters in the wild, as it were. And it's canceled Uh, this year. Well, it's canceled this year. It was canceled last year, too. So, I mean, that Benioff quote that I keep coming back to, that was that was uh, video conferencing. That was virtual. Uh, It was difficult to get access to people as a result. I mean, I, I was working by phone. I was working. Uh, on Zoom. I mean, I'm, I'm a field reporter. I mean, I like I like to go places and talk to real people. And I feel like you don't really understand people's stories in full until you're there trying to see the world through their eyes. And I did find it very frustrating to have to do most of my reporting by phone uh, and, and Zoom. But luckily, I mean, I had a lot in my notebook in terms of the countries I wanted to write about. And I had watched these guys up close over the years. I mean, I spent three days once in, in China uh, at a conference with Steve Schwartzman. Uh, he took us on a trip to uh, Tsinghua University, this very prestigious campus where he, he runs the Schwartzman Scholars, this kind of Rhodes Scholar-like operation that he's very proud of that he uses as a way to ingratiate himself with uh, Chinese Communist Party officials. Um, I had, I've spent time with Jamie Dimon here and there at Davos over the years. And then Benioff was the one guy who, you know, quite refreshingly was willing to engage. I mean, he, he talked to me on the phone, we texted a, a, a bit, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But it, it was challenging not being able to go actually see people up close. What immediate reforms could be enacted to to, uh, to rein in the Davos man and, and uh, get back to the kind of capitalism and democracy we knew in the past? Well, the prescription is really pretty simple. The execution is really, really difficult. We need progressive taxation, which we've had in the past, and it's worked very well. We need to which strengthen Which is not going to go through right now based on the current political situation. Well, right. But it's not like the current political situation is somehow divorced from everything that we're talking about. The current political situation is dominated by Davos men who were mobilized to hang on to their privileges. And so I don't, I don't say that lightly. It's not like, oh, you know, just snap a magic wand and suddenly we have taxation uh, of, of, of wealth. Uh, but that's what we got to do. I mean, that's, if, if we could tax wealth, if we could again enforce antitrust, and there's some real movement there with Lena Khan uh, running the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and if we could strengthen labor so that workers can actually – or collectively uh, and have some say o- o- over getting uh, their piece of the action from, from the gain of capitalism, we'd solve an awful lot of problems. But, you know, as you correctly note, the political situation is dominated by the very people who benefit from, from the status quo. And they've proven to us, uh, not for the first time, 
that they have a formidable apparatus they can use to fight off uh, any attempt at change. Oxfam International's executive director, Gabriela Boucher, said if these 10 men were to lose, uh, the, the 10 richest men in the world, uh, were to lose 99.999% of their wealth tomorrow, they would still be richer than 99% of all the people on this planet. They now have six times more wealth than the poorest 3.1 billion people. Uh, so you admit that reducing economic inequality is exceedingly difficult as a political objective. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, again, like this didn't happen by accident. It's not like I mean, I mean, this is how they do it at Davos, right? They they act like it's some sort of mystery uh, why we have this inequality. And, and this is part of their ruse. So if you go to Davos and you attend some of these seminars, you know, you can watch pharmaceutical executives in a room earnestly debating, you know, why is it the drug prices are so unaffordable? As if, you know, well, we just have to think about it. All the good people in this room just need to puzzle over better business models and some innovation and we can fix this problem when they know precisely why, because they have monopoly power, because they're good at privatizing the gains of publicly financed research and forcing people to pay extraordinary prices while lobbying the federal government through Medicare and Medicaid uh, to pay the freight and and while staving off attempts to breach their intellectual property, even in the middle of a pandemic or even when HIV is is ravaging the globe. I mean, it's not a mystery. And, and the 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 difficult part is getting uh, the public to recognize, and this is part of my mission here, that we have absorbed these false binary choices that Davos man has carefully cultivated and insinuated into our discourse. So I think many, you know, well-intentioned people believe that we can either have COVID vaccines and we just have to pay Pfizer and Moderna, whatever they want. And we have to accept that they're frontline medical workers in Africa who are treating COVID patients with no protection whatsoever, an open invitation to variants, either that or we all die because we don't have any vaccines at all. You know, we either allow Mark Benioff and Jeff Bezos to pay no taxes and we convince ourselves that we can't afford health care. We can't afford to help people who are in distress because they've lost a job or, or their housing is under threat. Or, you know, we can tax rich people, but then we're going to end up like Venezuela. And we're going to be diving into dumpsters for our dinner. Uh, you know, this is just nonsense. But but this kind of thinking is why it's so easy for the people who have all the money to avoid handing any of it over to the government. Because every time somebody comes up with a proposal that would involve wealthy people paying a, a, a fair share of taxes, uh, they fight it off by saying, well, you'll destroy innovation, you'll destroy the economy. I, I mean, Jeff Bezos, his income is about 83000 bucks a year. That's his most recent salary from, from Amazon. <laughs> that's, that's about what a public school elementary school teacher makes in, in California. So he's paying on income. If we just tax income, that's what Jeff Bezos is paying. And yet this guy owns, you know, a giant ranch in Texas. He owns a mansion in Georgetown. He's got a huge apartment on Park Avenue in Manhattan. I mean, this guy is worth $200 billion, but the money is in an asset class that not by accident, but through careful lobbying has been walled off from taxation. Peter, and that's wealth. We have virtually no time left, but I do have to ask you, considering the fact that President Biden's approval ratings really keep 
sinking lower and lower. How confident are you that he'll be able to enact meaningful financial reforms? I mean, not not confident at all. Uh, I mean, we we've seen this movie before. Right. I mean, Obama came into office after a crisis in, in 2008 and uh, uh, got a stimulus package passed. And then it didn't fix all of our problems. And then the Republicans convinced us that actually it was this massive squandering of taxpayer money and, and a package that had actually been too small, was too large. And that's why the economy wasn't doing well and people were out of work. And we're living the same experience again. Uh, and in Biden's case, I mean, he's, his administration is full of people who actually have thought a lot about working people, but it's also full of Davos men. You I got to I mean, leave it of... there, unfortunately. So sorry. Peter S. Goodman Thank is you. a global, global economics correspondent for The New York Times. He's a two-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. And the book that we've been discussing is Davos Men, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, special thanks to our live engineer, Richie Johnson, and to Leonard Lopez Lodge's executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devour the World by Peter S. Goodman. The important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopez at large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored and th- alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We hope you can join us again on Monday when Michael Waldman, the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, will discuss the updated new edition of his classic book, The Fight to Vote. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend. <laughs>